we're all about turning a crappy situation into something positive. A quarter million dollars of credit card I debt. I still remember the day when no one turned up. Throw it in the garbage and start from scratch. I could give myself a chance, so I started something. I mean, I think that counts as from poop to gold. <laughs> Welcome back to From Poop to Gold. I'm your co-host, Benton Crane, and today I'm joined by Sean McKnight. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks for having me, Benton. I appreciate it. Sean is one of the original creators of Cute Girl Hairstyles, uh, a YouTube channel that has been running for many years. Yeah, and 10 years, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Holy smokes, a yeah, whole yeah. decade. I know. Yeah. I can't believe that. I know, it's crazy. And so now it's evolved into more than just that, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're now managing six channels. Six channels, yeah. Mm-hmm. 15.5 million subscribers. In total. Mm-hmm. 2.6 billion views. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. That is so that's many. That's a lot, yeah. That is amazing. Yeah, it is. Okay, so... Uh, of course, we're going to dive into your backstory. We, we want to hear all about this. But first, paint a little more of a picture for the listeners about what it is you guys are currently doing, what your goals are, and what your strategy is. And then we'll go to the backstory. I, I think being conservative and some of the older people on YouTube, we feel like grandparents on YouTube when we see our peers in, the, in that t- upper echelon at the YouTube mm-hmm. events. And so we think of things differently. Um, we were very conservative early on. We didn't take brand deals for the first four years because we were afraid people would feel like we sold out. Yep. We didn't know how to edit, so everything was done in one take. I mean, there were a lot of things I think we were doing wrong and very hesitant because uh, we just didn't know what we were doing. On this side of it, now that our kids are involved in the business, we have a lot more experiences. Okay, how do we different or how do we diversify this? In a way, you know, YouTube isn't going to go away, but, you know, they could change monetization. Yep. And, you know, if your business is built on the AdSense and things go down, you got to lay employees off. So how do you diversify mm-hmm. off of YouTube, creating businesses that you own, that you, you know, own your own distribution, your own warehouse, your own products? Um, are there companies that you can own equity in mm-hmm. that allow that ability to dif- diversify a little better? And there have been several, you know, quote unquote, YouTubers who have kind of faded as a result of changes like that, right? Yeah. It, you know, historically, we've seen a, that the life cycle of a popular YouTuber is three to five years. You know, they hit that bump. It's going really, really well. After three to five years, they start to taper off, and then it really starts to, to, to go on its way down. And at that point, they're all like, what, you know, what do I got to do? I got to do more videos. I got to film more videos. got to upload more videos. I got to... And at that point, it's too late to uh-huh. really launch something with their audience base because the audience has already moved on. Got it. Got it. So talk to us a little bit about this strategy of how do you put products into place and distribution and all these other things mm-hmm. that you've talked about. So a lot of other creators, they'll first start with the t-shirts and the mugs and the hats, mm-hmm. you know, the typical merch. Our girls didn't want to do that. They have very, you know, pronounced eyes and eyelashes mm-hmm. and they wanted to have their own mascara. And we sat down and thought, well, oh, that's, that's a really ambitious project for your first merchandise you uh-huh. want to sell. But that's what they wanted to do. It was their senior project that, you know, we, we got a consultant for them. They helped develop that. It's all their own formula. There's a patent on the brush. They did an Indiegogo that helped fund the first PO, and they sold it, and they've done very, very well with it. So with our kids, we tell them, what is the product that you can't live without? If that's something you can't live without, then your audience will organically understand that you trust that product, that you love that product, and they're more likely to buy it than if you do a T-shirt that has some cute saying that's or, a, right. or a hat, right? So that's what, we've, you know, that's what they've decided they wanted to do, and, and Mindy's now doing that on her own. So that's fantastic. It's easy. You know, we tell our kids to do it, but is it better when we do it ourselves? Yes, it is. <laughs> and, um, and, and talk us through some of the results of, of this line of mascara. Have, have you guys been able to, to get it into retail? 
So yeah, initially we had a hard time doing that. We had consultants that worked with all the major uh, mascara companies, maybe uh-huh. L'Oreal or whatever. So they had all the connections with all the retail distributors. The problem we ran into that we didn't think about initially was they don't typically stock a one SKU from a company. They like to have two or three. And we didn't have that. We didn't want to invest the money in it. So we just went a standalone product distributed by ourselves. Yep. The success of the product has done so well, though, that several of them, you know, we're currently selling Riley Rose. We have, we can't make the announcement quite yet, but we have several large distribution deals that are, that are in contract stage right now. It's fantastic. You know, my girls get to go in these major stores and see their product on the shelf. That's really fun. Okay. So now of the six channels, three of them are still family channels. Correct. Three are family channels. Right. And three are not family channels. Correct. Tell us about that strategy. Well, I felt like, you know, we only had so much bandwidth to film and edit at that time when we started all three of those channels, I was doing it myself mm-hmm. and I didn't have enough time to take on more but I wanted to have uh, another revenue stream. So I felt like if we could create a channel, mentor some contributors on an independent contractor status, we pay them, they upload the videos. Mm-hmm. Brand deals would come in, we share with them a significant portion of that revenue, more than they could get on their own. And that channel, we would push to it. So I'd have an audience. And I felt like if we did that, we could generate you know, another channel that's generating revenue on its own, profit, and so kind forth. Kind of creating mm-hmm. an ecosystem. Kind of. That's, that was the intent. And out of the three, one of them's done very well. The other two, it's, it's harder when it's not you doing it. Uh-huh. People come in, they take my tips and everything, and they implement it on their own channel. And then after six months, they're like, oh, I'm just going to, because I'm making more on my own channel now, I'm, you know, I'm going to drop off. So that was kind of a little bit of a challenge for us. Worth trying. We do have one of those channels that just passed a million, um, which is, you know, pretty rare. So mm-hmm. we were excited about that. That's phenomenal. Let's uh, l- let's shift gears a little bit. I want to dive into your, your background. <clears throat> so from my experience, all successful people have to overcome some pretty serious challenges to become successful. I want to know if there's a point in your life or in your career where you faced something that at the time just felt insurmountable. But it later kind of ended up becoming this pivotal moment that shaped who you became. Um, I had a really good career before. I was working for a NASDAQ listed company as executive director or director of uh, business development. I was traveling overseas, opening subsidiaries for them. It was a dream job. It paid pretty well, but I had a large family, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, we wanted to adopt a child. So we adopted Daxton. And and in order to do that, because it's expensive, um, we took out a a second mortgage. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, a couple years later, we decided to adopt again so that he didn't feel alone mm-hmm. as an adopted child. And when we did, we found out at birth, when we were going to pick her up, that she had three heart defects. And the doctor sat us down and said, you know, you can walk away. You don't have to take this child. Um, there could be long-term care. It could be very expensive. You know, why don't you talk about it and I'll come in and you kind of let me know what you think. So we sat there together. This is YouTube's running. You know, uh-huh. it's, it's it's part of our lives at that point. We weren't ready to share this story to people, but you know, we thought this is this is serious. But this is our child. Is she supposed to be in our home, right? And so we, we kind of said a quick prayer. Uh, on the count of three, we both said our answer, and we were scared that one of us was going to say no. But we felt that was the fairest way to do it. On the count of three, we both said yes. We want this child. Can, can you help give the context mm-hmm. of? Uh, tell us enough about how the adoption process works mm-hmm. so that we know how far into the process you are with, sure. with, with her. So we, I think, I believe for her, we matched with the mother three months before birth. Okay. So we were communicating with the mom. 
Uh, we had hired a social worker to kind of help her with the process of knowing she was going to give the child up for adoption. We had an attorney involved. So there's a lot of costs involved leading up to that point. But the, it's more the emotional uh-huh. thing. You're seeing pictures of the mom. She's calling and telling how the doctor's visits go. So you feel very invested in this child. And she called us and told us the baby, I, I, I'm on the way to the hospital. I'm in the ambulance. Mm-hmm. You know, get on a plane. And so we hopped on a plane to go to uh, Pennsylvania. You know, and by the time we got to the hospital, I think Paisley was 10, 10 hours old. But it was a little disheartening to go in there and not see her in the NICU. Uh-huh. And where is she? And because we weren't the adoptive parents yet, the doctor couldn't tell us anything. And he was just like, oh, yeah. You'll so have you to just talk have to no them. idea. You'll have to talk to the birth mom about that. We're like, what's going on? You know, she was in the shower. The doctor came back in. He's like, well, you know, I, I know you're, you are going to adopt. I'll tell you that there's, there's these heart conditions. And we just, it was like our world got turned upside down a little bit. But, you know, through our faith and what, and what we believed and what we, the amount of love we felt like we already mm-hmm. had for her, because um, we'd held her, you know, a couple times before uh, she wasn't in the NICU, we knew she was supposed to be in our home. Uh-huh. But we didn't know yet what the full diagnosis was. And that doctor was shocked that we were so resolute about still adopting her, had no idea how we were going to pay for whatever care she needed. Now, when we finally got the diagnosis, there were three heart conditions that she had. Not super severe, but any combination of two of those could cause problems. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them she could grow out of, but there would be tests we'd have to do every year. Mm-hmm. You know, my salary was great, but it wasn't, you know, I had a big family. Right. For the next couple of years, we'd go to the doctor and there was these fees and these costs and whatever. But it was never an issue at that point because the money we were making on YouTube was enough to cover those things and pay off the adoption for her and her brother. So we felt like it was, that was a tough point in our lives where we had to make a really tough decision. Well, it really wasn't as tough as I think other people thought it was, but we weren't anticipating having to make that kind of decision. Right. But we were really lucky that this YouTube thing that everybody kind of made fun of us for delving into and participating in ended up not only helping us finish our family by adopting these two beautiful mm-hmm. kids, but also giving her the ability to get the medical attention that she needed. Do you think that decision might have been harder had you not had YouTube there as a uh, a financial backing, so to speak? Um, I wouldn't say harder in making the decision because I think we still, if your you know, four-year-old son had cancer, you would deliver he's, pizzas. He's you still would, your son. Yeah, you would mow lawns. You would do whatever you could to make sure you can make those co-pays or whatever mm-hmm. the deductibles are, right? Out-of-pocket expenses that you need to take. Why would it be any different for her? Because we knew she was our child. Even though we hadn't adopted her yet, we'd loved her into this world, mm-hmm. prayed her into this world. She was ours. So the decision so was she was already, even yeah. though the papers weren't signed yeah. yet, emotionally yeah. and spiritually, she was already your daughter. She was already, yep. she was already our that daughter. That makes sense. And, you know, I mean, just, just as we know how things tend to go sometimes, it's not always this way, but she's a healthy eight-year-old girl. Two of those heart defects, she was, she completely grew out of. She still has one and she's learning how to deal with. She can never scuba dive. We can live with that. She can't scoop it up. <laughs> but other than that, you would not even anticipate that anything was going on. That That is phenomenal. Um, can you talk to us about how that whole experience shaped your future? It put a lot of things in perspective, I think, because particularly with what we do, there's a lot of recognition when you go out. There's a lot of really cool experiences, celebrities. You know, you meet celebrities. Uh, there's a lot of, you know fanfare that kind of comes with it mm-hmm. but when when you when you go through something like this and you realize that stuff doesn't really matter 
this is what matters right here. It gives you the energy and the motivation to keep going and, and to make this the priority, make the family the priority. And we use YouTube to support that. Got it. Stay the other way around. Okay, so so let's talk about family dynamics. So yeah. your your channel has been a family channel, right? And and I think there have been several very successful family channels. And I think those of us on the outside looking in, there's often curiosity around what is what is it like to have that kind of visibility into your family life? Um, you know speaking of public visibility into into your life. Can you talk us about the before and after with that? I mean, the before was just as typical as any other family is, right? You go out and you you live your lives and people pretty much leave you alone. People are nice and say hi. Um, it's a little bit different when, when there's a recognition through what we do in YouTube or if you're in Hollywood or if you're a singer or whatever it may be, when you go out, like you can't, can't be yelling at your kids, you know, <laughs> right. you, you can't, you know, pick your nose cause people notice that kind of stuff. Right. But, um, working with your family, including your kids is a really cool blessing, but it's also really, really difficult because you don't know when to turn off being manager and, and parent okay. and vice versa. Um, however, I think for the kids going out, they, they were so young when it started, they don't mm -hmm. really know much different Brooklyn and Bailey do Camry to some extent, but the younger kids, this is, this has been their world. Mm -hmm. And they know that the only reason why we can do what we do is because of the viewers who watch our content. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if we're at the mall and it gets hard sometimes you're in a hurry trying to go somewhere. If a girl stops you to take a picture with the twins you know, the girls will take a picture and if three or four other girls line up, they don't brush them off. They take a picture with every single one of them. It's important that every one of those, those girls that stop them, you know, get that moment. With Brooklyn they and show appreciation, mm -hmm. for, show the appreciation fans. for them because mm -hmm. the fans made it all possible. It, right? Yeah. I mean, otherwise they'd just be hairstyle tutorials and vlogs that are just sitting out in the internet. You know, how, how about, um, let's talk about the twins as they were growing up, going through junior high and high school. How did their fame impact their experience as teenagers, you know, just high schoolers and stuff? Um, again, they handle it really well. I, I'm super proud of them. They, they just were very mature, even though they're in itty bitty teeny bodies, you know, as 19 year olds they're they're in college now, but they handled it so well. When we moved here to Texas, they were going into eighth grade. That's a tough year for kids to move. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. identity years. And they told me when they went into the first day of school in the cafeteria that there were a couple girls that were like, oh, my gosh, it's Brooklyn and Bailey. But for the most part, they were kind of left alone. And, and we actually appreciated that all through high school. They had a good group of friends. Um, it wasn't until they would go to away football games that they would get kind of, you know, hounded a little bit. I and see. People would, you know, crowd around them and want pictures and things like that, especially because the girls were cheerleaders and they had their high school name right mm -hmm. across their chest. So, you know, that's making the Internet, you know, didn't think about that one. But, uh, other, <laughs> uh, you know, all being said, they had a very normal, considering the circumstances, very normal teenage years. Got it. Got it. Um, okay, let's shift gears and talk about creative uh, creative processes. Is there a time or a place where ideas flow best for you? I'm going to be honest and say Mindy and the girls are the creative okay. side of the business. I tend to be more the operations, the finance, data analytics. Uh -huh. yep. So when it comes to the creative side, I think I have pretty darn good ideas and I throw them out there and they're very clear <laughs> on telling me that that was pretty lame, dad. Sean, I can relate to that. <laughs> okay. So at Harmon Brothers, I'm like the least creative okay. person of the bunch. And so I'll show up and be like, guys, this I've is got it. You've got to hear this idea. And I'll, 
I'll share my idea and then just like crickets and people will be like, thanks, Benton. (laughs) I think that's really funny. (laughs) Been there, been there many times. Got it. Um, Okay. So, so let's not talk specifically about creative as in like super entertaining and engaging um, or funny or whatever it is, but let's talk about creative in terms of business strategy, creative in terms of operational strategies. Where do your ideas flow best? Um, I would say, so Minnie and I actually do a lot of this together. We, we, you know, after we put the kids to bed, that's when we actually have more of our strategic planning. Mm-hmm. Like throughout the day, it's just operations, trying to get through the carpools, you know, going to the office, dealing with whatever emails or projects or phone calls. But at night, that's when we're like, okay, you know, what, what do we think about this? If then what, you know, trying to rationalize, you know, which direction do we take? Um, and what I appreciate about my wife is, you know, for the, for working together as long as we have, we actually make a pretty darn good team. And, and that's hard because, you know, a lot of, a lot of spouses can't work together and live together. It's, it's, it causes a lot of problems. Yeah, yeah, that can be But a Mindy challenge. and I really work well together. And a lot of the things that we've been able to do have been because of those meetings. Not, I don't want to call them meetings. It's just like we're just strategically planning and there's just kind of ideas that just flow. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yep. Uh, would you say one of you is more strategic and the other more tactical? And if so, who, which of you fills I would, which role? And I think she would totally agree. Mindy's more, uh, I don't want to say a dreamer, but she's the one that's more in the ideation phase. Okay. And I'm more of the execution and operation. Got um, it. And that's, I think, why we make such a good team. She's creative and, and what I just mentioned, and I'm more of the support behind it. And that's a every great once in a while, I have a great idea. She might be like, yeah, hey, we'll actually try that. And I feel like I'm like, <laughs> I got a bronze star, you know? But uh, we make a good team. That's perfect. Um. Okay, so talk to us about what networking is like for you. Um, because, you know, any successful person needs a support group around them True. and needs great people and great connections to make things happen. Mm-hmm. What has been your strategy with connecting with the right people? I think it's on two fronts. First of all, I'll talk on a peer level. Um, I think it's really important, at least at least it was for me, to find people who are in similar situations, which was kind of hard early on because there weren't older couples with kids our age. Brooklyn and Bailey were the first second generation YouTubers to reach a million subscribers, meaning we reached a million and then our child on their own okay. reached a million. So there, you know, we kind of pioneered that way. There wasn't a lot of people that could relate. You know, a lot of little kid families, you know, little vloggers, but uh, there wasn't. But now that, you know. YouTube has evolved and there's more kids and family content. We're finding more husbands and wives where the husband is now quit and is working with the wife Mm -hmm. full time. They now understand that dynamic and we can kind of bounce. Well, this is what we see. This is what we struggle with. And that really helps. Now on a networking side, in terms of profession, for me, when I go to the YouTube events, I'm not going to go hang out with the Casey Neistats or the, you know, whoever may be, whoever, you know, Liza, Liza Koshi. They're all wonderful people and they're great friends of mine. But I go there and I look at who is the strategic person here within YouTube that I haven't met yet. It's the C-level. I want to I make a relationship with them. That matters to me. Not because I want to call and have favors done for me. But to me, it's like I, I feel like having that open line of communication with them that, that they, then they trust us when there is an issue that comes up, they're more, more willing to communicate with me. And if there's, if there's a beta program within YouTube and they're like, who, which creators should we put in here? Our family typically, not always. I mean, but I, I know several occasions where our family name has come up and we were put into that program, certain new ad types or new features. We get thrown into those betas. 
So, Sean, mm-hmm. let's uh, let's see if we can give a couple of tips to our audience. Okay. Yeah. So let's aim for anyone who has already built some sort of audience. Not necessarily huge, but somebody has an audience. What tip would you give them on how to take the next step in terms of diversifying their their monetization strategy or maybe putting a product strategy in place for them? Mm-hmm. How would you start? Um, speaking from the experience of having waited too long to diversify, I, I think there's comfort in that AdSense or the brand deal dollars coming in. It's exciting. But if you're if, if that is what excites you, you're really missing out on an opportunity because owning you you can pitch somebody else's product and make a sponsorship you know dollar amount from that mm-hmm. and it can be quite a bit of money most of them are one offs and you may not work with that company again but when it's your own product and you're passionate about it and your audience can tell that and they buy it from you you're going to get much more money much more revenue from that because you own that product now you can have a 3PL and somebody distribute it for you but what you know there's some cost there but when it's your own product it's somehow it's just more satisfying and i think for us my advice to somebody who's in that position where they actually have a pretty sizable audience but are just collecting the revenue checks and the, or the AdSense checks and the sponsorship dollars is to not wait because that life cycle does tend to be three to five years and you don't want to be caught on that downward slump when you finally decide, oh, I need to diversify. Right. Because it takes, as you know, in product development, it can take a year to 18 months depending on the product to get that from concept to a point of sale. So be thinking about it early Early. and and Mm -hmm. put the ball in motion. Yep. And find a product that you're passionate about that you can't live without. That's what you want to sell. Now, does it need to be an original invention or can it just be a product that you already use and love, but now you can create your own version of it, your own branded version of it? Um, I think it can be both. I mean, it's sometimes risky when you come with an own, own you know, unique invention slash design. But if, if you love Axe deodorant, you know, and you can't live without it, come up with your own deodorant or you, you have a fragrance that you love and you want to launch your own, you know, rather than pushing somebody else's, do your own. Trying to find that product is really unique. I can't really throw a lot of examples. It's what is, I mean, what do you love? What's something you can't live without? Like mm-hmm. you literally have to have it today, tomorrow or this week. I don't know. Makes perfect sense. (laughs) So where's the best place for our listeners to follow you? So I'm very new to social media personally because I actually prefer behind the camera Uh instead of my kids were like, dad, quit like liking our our posts on our own Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Get your own, you know, it's because I would try to help them whenever they were out of town or whatever. So I finally got my own Twitter. It's uh, Sean McKnight eight for the eight kids we have. Okay. And then on Instagram, I have one called Mr. Sean McKnight, S-H-A-U-N. McKnight. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I've got a copy of our book from poop to gold for you. I appreciate that. And for for our listeners, if you want to check out the book from poop to gold, it it has great insights into how we built our creative culture at Harmon brothers. So thank you so much for listening. Please like share and subscribe the podcast and we'll see you on the next one.